Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hundreds of cities put in bids to be the second headquarters for Amazon, including 26 separate bids in Massachusetts and one in New Hampshire. We have long believed that providing lots of options is a winning strategy. All the benefits of Boston without the headaches. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Denkoski. Coming up, we'll talk with reporters Asma Khalid and Todd Bookman about a cross-border battle for jobs. We'll also visit a former guest on our show, a community organizer in Boston who's now trying to get aid to his family's hometown in Puerto Rico. No one had come through here. We were asked, are you FEMA, right? That means that they have not seen FEMA and everyone's saying FEMA, FEMA, FEMA. We'll wade into the water in the search of a humble but important fish and to help stranded sea turtles. And in this spooky season, a haunting in Connecticut. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, a border battle over jobs. But first, we've been tracking the recovery efforts in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. The island is about four hours away by plane from Hartford or Boston, but in many ways, it's the island next door for New England's more than 600,000 Puerto Rican residents. WNPR News Director Jeff Cohen got back this week from a reporting trip to the island where he was meeting with Connecticut residents who were providing supplies, fresh water, and hope. And in some cases, bringing people back north to escape the tough conditions there. Uh, Tell us where all you were planning to go uh, while you were on the island. We ended up going south into Caguas and a smaller town called Sidra. We then went uh, very south past those towns and a little uh, west of there to a town called Salinas. Uh, And then we went east to Umacao. So we really did our best to sort of see as much topographically of the island as we could so we could get a sense of the different effects in different places. And in many of those places, you were connecting with people who have connections right here in Connecticut who were either checking in on loved ones or were trying to provide aid. All right. That was the whole point. So we, uh, we it was on our first day there, we actually had a road trip uh, with Luis Cotto. Luis was a, f- a former Hartford resident, uh, well-known to people in the city of Hartford, a former city councilman, now lives in Cambridge. Yeah, and, and we talked to him on the program because he's a community organizer down at Eggleston Square in, That's right. in Boston. That's right. And so Luis had worked for a series of weeks between the storm and our trip to get about, I think he traveled down there with 13 bags on Southwest full of solar lights, these inflatable solar lights uh, that you blow them up and then it's that airspace that gets lit. It's kind of cool. And these uh, water purifier things that screw on to the end of only certain water bottles we found out. Uh, And his goal was to go to his hometown. Uh, But on the way there, uh, we got lost. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the town of Caguas, and he pu- we pulled over, and he went to ask people directions. And then what, what ended up happening is it quickly went from asking directions to they don't have lights, they don't have water. Um, and so Luis got some stuff out of his backpack and, and, and his duffel bag and, and showed them how to use it and how to, how to inflate these lights and how to use the water purifiers. And then we met a man named Jose uh, Ayala who was there, uh, and he actually grew up in Holyoke. And here's what he told us. 
No, we we don't we don't have any help from nobody, man. Like uh, you know, uh, the mayor from here, our mayor. You know, we haven't seen him. We, just you three guys. You know, you're the first guy that came in here. Not even the police come in here. This is a project, you know, and they scare uh, the people in here. I think, you know. Yeah, this this was a guy, Mr. Ayala, who said that water was scarce, food was scarce, and the, in addition to water, what he really needed was cash. But they, they, he said he had cash, but he couldn't get it off of his credit card. So it was it created a, a problem in terms of just getting food. And when you go to the store, you could only get a couple gallons of water. So supplies were tight there. We hopped in the car after that, and then we went to where we were trying to go, which was to visit a very nice woman named Ida Garcia. She is the grandmother of Robert Cotto, unrelated. Uh, and she, uh, Robert Cotto is a former board of education member here in the city of Hartford. Uh, and when we got there, we saw that her roof had blown off uh, in the storm over her bedroom and her son was mopping out and they mop out every day because every day almost it rains in Caguas and that when it rains, it rains in her bedroom. So I asked her and she was sort of, her, her breathing was labored and, it, and she blamed that. She says asthma and she says it's the it's the constant standing water in the house that's making her sick. She, I said, what do you need? You need electricity? She said, no. She says, oh, I need someone to fix my roof. And her daughter uh, said she was too lax and called her a conformist. Conformista. <laughs> Which is what in English, conformist. Mm-hmm. What is that? What? Because I hear the news and see, you know, the things that they're giving from United States for us over here, and nobody has come over here. And, you know, it's not well to be with light so many days with water. We have kids, grandkids, you know. One of the stories that, that you've heard a lot is of people whose uh, grandparents, and in some cases great-grandparents, are living on the island. They don't necessarily want to leave the island. In some cases they do, but they're less able to leave than, than others. And, and I know that you encountered a, a number of these stories along the way. That's right. I mean, in fact, uh, Maribella Luce, who's here in the city, she, she used to work for the city of Hartford. Her grandfather left San, uh, outside of San Juan to be in Connecticut for a time. He has since gone back. He'd, <laughs> he can't stand to not be there. Uh, and then there are some people who really want to leave. So when you left this woman's house, where did you go next? We then traveled to the town of Sidra, which is where Luis Cotto's family is from. His grandfather uh, bought this uh, piece of land, and now it's, it's split up between lots of relatives and uncles and aunts and a guy named Junior. And <laughs> and uh, and here's him talking a little bit about what his goal was. I chose this, as I mentioned, Bloquera, the sector. I chose this sector partly because this is the family hometown, right? Um, the home area. Uh to distribute uh, solar lights, water filters, and try and install some solar panels in homes throughout the sector. That was the initial, like, desire. And he also, John, chose that because there was a sense that not being this being a mountain town, not a whole lot of people were coming through. No one had come through here. No one, this whole sector, nobody, oh, this is also, everyone assumed I was FEMA. We were asked, are you FEMA? Um, someone just asked me right now when we went to look for this woman, are you guys FEMA, right? That means that they have not seen FEMA and everyone's saying FEMA, FEMA, FEMA. And this is another part of the story, Jeff. When we were making the connections in advance and trying to find people and where their relatives, friends, and family lived on the island, although San Juan and the neighboring suburbs are a couple million people, 
an awful lot of the people who have connections here mm-hmm. in New England are people whose relatives live in little hill towns just like this one. That's right. And we didn't have to work very hard to find people uh, from New England. Uh, we were at, on a river where people were getting fresh water right out of the river uh, that was then filtered and purified, purified and then filtered, actually. We met a guy from New Haven. Uh, one of the people in the housing project uh, development that we were at, she lived in Bridgeport, grew up in Bridgeport. There's this man from Holyoke. I mean, it was you, we didn't we did work hard to make sure we found people from New England, but we, in the end, we didn't have to. Hmm. So, so take us through a little bit more of of Luis's story. Who who did you meet next? Sure. So, in his uh, Bloquera, which is his neighborhood there, um, live a bunch of his aunts and uncles, and we met. Uh, her name is Paula Santiago. And Paula uh, is his aunt, and she, uh, you know, mental health is going to be an interesting thing here. You know, it's a going through a storm like this is a traumatic experience, and so Luis does a little bit helps describe uh, the experience from his father's perspective. And like Papi said, they they were hiding in the they were hiding in the closet, not for minutes, that they, not for five minutes that they can go. Wow, that was crazy hours. And he said, in the nighttime. The wind and rain were going this way, and then there was nothing, and then it was going this way. Then the other part, right, come the eye goes through, and they've never been through that. And so then uh, we were talking about this, and his aunt walked up the hill, and uh, this is Paula, and I asked her how she was feeling, and let's, let's hear a little bit of that. I feel like you, you're always scared that something else is going to come, another storm, and it was awful. I think that that storm had um, the power of the tornado because when I was hearing the wind, it went like going around the house, making a, a, a terrible noise like um, a, a big um, motor, and then um, a whistle, and it never stopped. So we spoke for a while about that. I mean, it's, it's obviously a very present thing. And it, it was for a lot of people we spoke with, just the trauma of the storm. And, and so she was looking to get out of Puerto Rico as quickly as she could and go stay with her daughter. One or two months. You're going just to? to? Yeah. Just to see, to to get in, in my, like, how, how did you say? Um, el tiempo de... To get the rhythm, get the rhythm back? Yeah, because um, the... The storm got me so scared that uh, I feel like I don't sleep well because I'm afraid that something else is going to come. So I want to go just for a little bit, like one or two months, and then relax and come back. The the mental health aspect of this is going to be so important, not just right now, but for a long time for the people who lived through this storm and its aftermath. Uh, another one of the stories you told was tracking some people, healthcare professionals who'd come from all over the island to try to help people, to mm-hmm. set up a clinic, meet people who needed help, but because of all the logistical hurdles in the way, there weren't even really people there to be treated. Right, and 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 why does that matter? Because um, what that means is much of Puerto Rico is still in emergency response mode. People still need food, people still need water, people still don't have electricity. This is a month out. If you have to wake up uh, in the morning and get gasoline for your generator uh, before you go to work uh, and t- or try and take care of your family, all these things are basic survival things that are natural to us who are here, say, in Connecticut, and you just turn, you wake up and everything's working. It's hard enough in your normal life to take care of yourself. <laughs> if you have to do all those things, make sure you have water, food, some sort of electricity, some sort of gasoline for your generator before you leave – 
there's no time left. If there's no normal, there's no time left uh, to begin for self-care. And so it's, it's sort of recovery interrupted. Uh, and that's where a lot of people are going to be. Uh, maybe we should end with a, a, a happy story, sure. a, a story that came out of your reporting. Uh, when you flew down, you interviewed a man named Guillermo Klaas, uh, and he was m- coming from Hartford to meet up with his two sons who live in Puerto Rico, and he was going to bring them back home to live here, uh, and in part because there was nothing for them at the moment in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, the story that he told you was particularly moving uh, in that he had to sell his car. He sell, sold his vehicle in order to pay for the plane tickets for himself and his two sons. That story uh, aired on our stations and on NPR, and it got a lot of response. It did get a lot of response. Uh, he got back here, and he had lots of offers for people who wanted to give him an old car or help him get a car, a GoFundMe campaign. In fact, yesterday I went with him to uh, Eastern Connecticut Health Network to a hospital there where a physician's group gave him a check for $2,000 to help him and his sons transition into their new life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a happy ending to an otherwise pretty rough time. Uh, and WNPR plans to go back to the island and continue to cover the story throughout the year. Absolutely. Jeff Cohen is the news director of WNPR in Hartford, Connecticut. Thanks so much for joining us, Jeff. I appreciate it. You're welcome, John. That's Jeff Cohen, who's reporting from Puerto Rico as part of a project by WNPR and the New England News Collaborative called The Island Next Door. You can hear some of his reporting and see Ryan Karen King's photos and videos at nextnewengland.org. They're oily, they're smelly, they're bony. They're one of the least sexy fish imaginable. We're talking about the Atlantic menhaden, known by other names like bunker or pogey. This humble fish has deep roots off the coast of New England. It's believed that Native Americans taught the pilgrims to fertilize their crops with the fish. And for decades, millions of tons of menhaden were pulled out of the ocean. Now there's a movement to preserve this vital species, not just for the fishermen who catch it, but for the animals that eat it. WNPR's Patrick Scahill met up with some fishermen in Long Island Sound to learn a bit more. John McMurray says he doesn't really believe in reincarnation. But if it's true, the charter boat captain jokes he's probably going to come back as a bunker. Kind of fast-growing, short-lived species. Things that are, frankly, put on this earth so that other things could eat them. Eaten by ospreys, tuna, and sometimes something a bit bigger. You'll be fishing on a bunker school, and 20 feet away from me, all of a sudden they'll all spray out at the same time, and these whales will come up and open their mouths, like 20 feet, so close you could smell their breath. Today, it's a rainy morning on Long Island Sound. The sun's just flickered over the horizon, and McMurray and I are out on a boat looking for Menhaden. As we pull out of the Norwalk Cove Marina, Captain Corey Crochetier explains what to look for. A lot of times you'll see birds on them, like the cormorants you see there, or you're looking for what we call snaps. Or pops, little dimples on the water. We spot a few, and Crocheteer drives towards them. McMurray tosses in a net and quickly hauls it all up. Dozens of bunkers spill onto the deck. About that, huh? Yeah, maybe your machine's not working. But Manhattan harvests weren't always like this. Joseph Gordon is with the Pew Charitable Trust. He's riding on the boat with us. Up until 2012, there was no coastwide limit on this fish at all. And Gordon says all that fishing had an impact. There were very noticeable declines that were happening, you know, especially around 2010. And so it was both a sense that the the population is declining and also that its value was 
so important that we needed to protect it. So in 2012, an interstate compact called the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission took action. It set a cap on the coastwide harvest of menhaden. Before, the harvest had been fairly unrestricted. And so that was a really big shift in how we manage menhaden. Megan Ware is with the commission, which is now looking at another shift in how the fishery is managed. Menhaden serve as prey for lots of different predator species. And so this will look at not only the abundance of menhaden, but also the abundance of other predator species. Corey Crochetier says the 2012 coastwide catch cap worked, and he hopes that if passed, new limitations would too. We had no menhaden for years, and then all of a sudden, within two years of that, that reduction, they're just everywhere. Without those menhaden, it's like we have no fishery. No striped bass in the spring, you have no bluefish in the summer. Crocheteer says he hopes menhaden stay abundant. For the environment, sure, but also for his business selling fishing boats. Because, he says, if he's got a great fishery in the area, that's more people that want to go out and fish. That's Patrick Scahill reporting. If the menhaden suffers from not being very lovable, there's another creature in our waters that everyone loves the sea turtle. But for sea turtles in New England, fall is a dangerous time. Rhode Island Public Radio's environmental reporter Avery Brookins went to the New England Aquarium's hospital in Quincy, Massachusetts to find out why hundreds of sea turtles end up there once ocean temperatures drop. A clinical volunteer is checking the heart rate of a Kemp's Ridley sea turtle with a Doppler instrument. Its heart rate is healthy now, but volunteers often have turtles come in whose hearts are beating only five to ten times every minute. That's because of a condition called cold stunning. So the most common reason we see turtles admitted to our hospital is because of this condition. It's similar to hypothermia. That's veterinarian Charles Innes. Because turtles are reptiles and their body temperature is dependent on the environment, when the water starts getting cold in late fall and early winter, their um, movements become much slower, their heart rates drop, their body functions in general slow down, and eventually they're so weak that they get washed up onto beaches. And when that happens around Cape Cod Bay, they're brought here by volunteers from a nature conservation group in Massachusetts. The hospital typically receives two shipments a day that can include anywhere from one to 100 turtles per shipment. Innes says the turtles are placed into cardboard boxes and then lined up throughout the hospital's hallway. We're sequentially going through each case, weighing them, measuring them, checking their heart rates, uh, doing physical exams, identifying them as individuals with a um, bracelet around their flipper or a number on the back of their shell and then they move through our hospital system. The next step is to raise the turtle's body temperature. You open the door. Innis shows me an intensive care unit that can hold up to 15 turtles. And each of these crates will slide out, and so we have um, padding on the bottom. The chamber slowly warms the turtles back to their preferred body temperature of 75 degrees. It also controls how much humidity and oxygen the turtles receive. And if the turtles are having trouble breathing, there's a ventilator specially designed to deliver a breath every five or so minutes to mimic their breathing pattern in the ocean. All right, so if we can move them about an inch forward, just mm -hmm. like the eggs. Okay. All right, and the Senior biologist Yulika Vochal is giving turtle 138, named Geyser, its antibiotics intravenously. 
and volunteer Sarah Capazzoli is gently grasping Geyser's sides so it can't escape from the exam table. Geyser is recovering from pneumonia, which is the most common illness the turtles have when they're admitted here. New England Aquarium spokesman Tony Lacasse says that's because when sea turtles are cold stunned, their immune systems are compromised. And they're also not respiring well. Uh, they're, not being, they're not getting a good breath. Uh, they're probably getting some fluid in their lungs, and then they get the pneumonia that will set in. And that pneumonia can sit there for weeks. Some turtles die in the hospital because of their pneumonia, but many others, like Geyser, recover well. Dr. Innes looks at the turtle's x-rays and sees some signs of scarring on the lungs. But he does not have any really obvious um, evidence of pneumonia at this point, which is good because he previously had pretty bad pneumonia, and it tells us that his antibiotic therapy has been working well. Two volunteers place metal buckets of herring and squid on a table. It's time to feed the turtles, which Dr. Innes says is typically a challenge during the cold stunning season. They're not familiar with eating in captivity. They may not recognize the food items that we're providing to them. And so a lot of our time during the day after they're stable is spent with um, volunteers and staff trying to coax each turtle to accept their first food. It can take hours and about 25 volunteers to coax the turtles into eating. This turtle's done feeding. He's one of our really good eaters, so he eats very quickly. That's clinical volunteer Lydia McDonald. She says as the turtles are being fed, volunteers are watching how they interact with the food. So looking for um, use of all four flippers, using, looking to see how well they're turning in the water, if they're able to dive well, um, if they're able to surface well for breaths, that sort of thing. And after about six to eight months, most of the turtles are ready to be released back into the ocean off of Cape Cod, where they can begin their journey south. That's Avery Brookins reporting. If you want to see pictures of recovering sea turtles, and I know you do, go to nextnewengland.org. Coming up, Massachusetts makes a big bid for Amazon's HQ2, and its neighbor throws out a different kind of welcome mat. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. October 19th was the deadline for states and cities to submit their bids to online retailer Amazon. The company says it's now gotten 238 proposals from places hoping to be home to its second North American headquarters, Amazon promises to employ up to 50,000 full-time workers at this future campus with average salaries upwards of $100,000. 44 states have at least one bid in, including every state in New England except for Vermont. Now, New Hampshire's proposal is as much about what the state has to offer as, well, what it doesn't have, while throwing some shade at its conspicuous neighbor to the south. Here's Governor Chris Sununu taking uh, the same tone at a press conference announcing the bid last week. The governor said that New Hampshire has all the benefits of Boston without the headaches, without the traffic, without the taxes, without the bureaucracy, but still being able to draw off the most talented workforce pool in the world. Of course, Boston has also thrown its hat into the ring along with 25 other sites in Massachusetts. Joining me to discuss this cross-border kerfuffle and all the politics behind the bids in both of these states is Asma Khalid, who's Bostonomics reporter at WBUR, and Todd Bookman, who covers business and economics for New Hampshire Public Radio. Asma, Todd, welcome to Next. So uh, let's start with you, Asma. You know, New Hampshire 
is pitching itself to Amazon as an alternative to Boston. Um, I, I guess I'm wondering, first of all, is there any reason to believe that Amazon leaders have been seriously considering Boston or the greater Boston area as a primary contender for the site? So, John, it's really hard to kind of hypothesize, but there were Bloomberg reports uh, earlier on during this entire uh, open bid process that claimed some senior Amazon executives were lobbying for the second headquarters to be based here in Boston. You know, obviously, Amazon was very quick. Uh, to deny those reports. But Boston does see itself as this place that has the workforce talent. It certainly has the academic institutions that would be attractive to Amazon and, and is making the case that when you're looking at cities all over North America, you'd be really hard pressed to find a sort of center of research that compares to Boston. So it's a research center. We know about that. But Massachusetts is also in its bids trying to play up some other Things that it's got going for it, uh, that it's that it's welcoming to people from all walks of life. Uh, is that something that Amazon's looking really closely at? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I do know that in Amazon's RFP, it specifically says that it's looking for a, quote, stable and business-friendly environment, and that it's also looking for communities that kind of think creatively in this bid process. Um, you could make the case that a stable and business-friendly environment does sort of um, speak to the idea of being welcoming to different communities. You know, obviously, you've seen issues both in Indiana and North Carolina over the years where that was a certain pieces of legislation put forward that would potentially hurt LGBTQ. LGBT communities, and that is detrimental, right? But this is totally me hypothesizing here. I I think that the other thing that Amazon is specifically committed to is the idea of sustainability efforts. Uh, The company invests in a large number of solar and wind energy operations, and they have suggested that that is important to them in whatever city they choose for a second headquarters. Uh, Before we move on to to New Hampshire, I guess I should ask, I mean, we're talking about Greater Boston, Asma, and there's a, a bid specifically for Suffolk Downs, Boston, working with a neighboring town. But I mentioned 26 total bids. What's going on with that? Massachusetts can't make up its mind? So, John, we have asked this question specifically to the Secretary of Housing and Economic Development here in Massachusetts. His name is Jay Ash, and and this is how he described it to us. We have um, long believed that providing lots of options and then allowing a company to look at those options and narrow them down is a a winning strategy. So maybe the idea is 26 possible sites and Amazon can see and sort of pick and choose uh, what it likes. So there are places that range from, say, the Merrimack Valley, right? These are sort of a a group of cities near the New Hampshire border that are thinking of of collectively. They went in together on a joint bid. Then you have a place like Worcester, which is about an hour-ish, you could say, uh, west of Boston. And uh, that's a city that is the second largest city in Massachusetts, but it really doesn't have the kind of, um, I would say, economic wealth or housing that Boston has. And so it was willing to put forth a much larger tax incentive on the ground, saying that they were willing to offer up to a a half a billion dollars in sort of tax incentives. Um, But you see cities all over the state of Massachusetts essentially uh, willing to put forth this bid. But John, I think what the most interesting piece of all of this is that ultimately it's kind of like looking at spokes on a bicycle wheel, right? And the hub is Boston. And so all of them are arguing that they have the talent workforce and that talent workforce is intimately connected to Boston and Cambridge and its academic institutions here. Uh, what they're trying to say is like, yes, you know, we're, we're close to Boston. We have that workforce, but, you know, hey, we're more affordable than Boston. Okay, well, that's exactly the reason we're turning to New Hampshire now. So, Todd, tell us about the site that New Hampshire has chosen 
uh, first of all, to to put out forward as this bid to to Amazon. And by the way, don't tell me that New Hampshire is floating 26 different cities, too. No, we've got just one. All of our eggs are in uh, the basket of Londonderry. Londonderry is a town of about 25,000 people, not too far from the Massachusetts border. We, in New Hampshire, we call this the southern tier of the state. And the site itself is called Woodmont Commons. So this is a new 603-acre mixed-use development site. So this is a project that has been long in the works uh, something like 500,000 square feet of commercial space, 1,000 apartments or townhouses all on the site of a former apple orchard. And I actually covered the groundbreaking for this development back in June. They had to move the event inside because of rain. It was sort of funny. You know, we held this groundbreaking in a barn full of tractors. You know, I'm not sure that's the image Amazon has in mind for where it wants to you know, locate its its newest home. But uh, Londonderry has some things to, to offer, according to Governor Sununu and this development. It's going to be a live-work, play-style community, not necessarily a very traditional New, New England approach to, to town planning. But the thought is easy on-off from the highway. You've got plenty of hopefully affordable housing and quick access to Massachusetts. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about how Governor Chris Sununu framed this, though. We, we want to, in New Hampshire, say... We're close to Massachusetts, but we're not Massachusetts. Let's remember that. So so tell us more about that. What was he trying to pitch that New Hampshire had that, that nearby Boston wouldn't have? Yeah, we heard him say you know, earlier in that tape, it's the benefits of Boston without all the headaches. This is a very familiar theme in New Hampshire. It's sometimes called the New Hampshire advantage. You know, we pair this, what we consider a high quality of life, uh, you know, beaches, mountains, low crime, low traffic. With, uh, you know, high high education, uh, a good workforce, wealthy, but none of the drawbacks of Boston. It's this sort of pitch that the governor is willing to make, you know, to anybody who will listen that uh, we have all the good and, and none of the bad of Boston. And this is something that happens all the time in New Hampshire politics, right? Playing off the, the state, the tax advantages, the kind of live free or die attitude versus the more liberal states to the south with the higher taxes and all the concurrent problems of a, of a big city. Oh, yeah. This is a key selling point for a lot of people uh, trying to attract businesses to New Hampshire. You know, in the proposal, I, my, my, my absolute favorite line is uh, towards the back where uh, we, we write, New Hampshire writes, make the predictable choice, choose Boston, and next year when you leave your tiny $4,000 a month apartment only to sit in two hours of traffic trying to make your way to an overburdened airport, you'll be wishing you were in New Hampshire. I'm not sure that's fair to Logan. I'm not sure, Asma, if you're in a $4,000 a month apartment either, but um, that that's our pitch. Wow, that that is quite a pitch. What did people in Boston make of this, Asma? <laughs> you know, that specific line, I feel like, actually raised a lot of eyebrows here. And I actually heard somebody retort and, and say, well, you know, you can have your cheaper apartment and drive to your airport that only has, you know, limited destinations and you can't get anywhere from that airport up in New Hampshire. So I feel like people here in, in Boston saw it as a sort of tongue in cheek, you know, um, all in, in good sort of faith and good good humor kind of pitch. And, and in some ways, I would make the case that many Bostonians even saw this as a point of pride because if you sift through that New Hampshire bid, there are so many points of praise for what Massachusetts and more specifically kind of the greater Boston area has to offer. You know, there's a page specifically on uh, educational institutions and two of the four colleges cited are uh, Harvard and MIT. You know, and so people sort of laugh and say, well, hey, those aren't New Hampshire colleges. Well, okay. 
There is one little bit of truth, though, in that. I mean, we were joking about the $4,000 a month apartment, and this is a real thing that Boston and some of the other booming urban areas of America have to really contend with. As you've seen this tech boom, as you've created all these jobs, you've also driven up a pretty high cost of living. Is that something that that the people in Boston, Osmar, are taking seriously, especially in conjunction with this bid? I mean, look, if if you got 50,000 new jobs from Amazon and all of a sudden you had to house all those workers and we drove up prices for uh, housing even more, that starts to create a problem where there's already a really expensive housing market. Mm-hmm. And so, John, one thing we should point out for folks who aren't really sp- uh, familiar exactly with where Suffolk Downs is, and this is the primary bid site location in Boston. It's actually about a five-minute-ish, you could say, T-ride uh, T down to Logan Airport. So it's in East Boston. But East Boston itself is rapidly gentrifying. And so the prices of homes have just sort of been skyrocketing, I should say, and skyrocketing very, very quickly, right? You sort of have all these luxury condos opening up on the waterfront. I would kind of compare it to, uh, to Brooklyn, right? I mean, in some ways, I, maybe Brooklyn isn't fair. Maybe Brooklyn, say, a couple of decades ago. But you see luxury condos with beautiful views of the Boston skyline popping up. And so that area, East Boston Revere, is where Suffolk Downs would be. And there are, uh, it's also at the same time, a heavily immigrant neighborhood. Uh, a number of Hispanic and, and Arab families have lived there. Uh, it's long been known as this area where many um, sort of, you know, lower to middle class families could afford to live and commute into the city. And so with that in mind, I think housing is particularly important to folks. And we posed that question to Boston Mayor Marty Walsh uh, a couple of days before the actual bid was submitted for Boston. He was on one of our programs, Radio Boston. The housing stock and the housing market is going to be feeded from all over greater Boston. It's not all going to be within the city of Boston limits. You just can't do it. The issue that's happening at the same time is even though we're building all this housing, we, we have, our, our population has grown by about over 30,000 people in the last three years. So as quickly as we're building this housing, you need even more, more people it. coming yeah. in. And that voice there was Magna Chakrabarty. She's uh, the host here on Radio Boston. But the point there was specifically that housing is a huge problem. And among just average Bostonians, when you ask them about the bid, I would say consistently people seem relatively supportive about it. But housing and the price of housing is a huge, huge concern. Is there a concern amongst businesses, Asma, in the greater Boston area that the cost of doing business is just too high right now? Are you starting to see smaller businesses flee because of some of this? We've certainly heard people moving across the border to tax-free New Hampshire. Are businesses doing it too? So, John, uh, not to my knowledge right now, at least, you know, and not particularly, I should say, in the tech realm. Uh, I myself first moved to Boston in 2013, and so I feel like I've sort of seen the city's economy uh, really revolutionize in front of my own eyes. You see a number of large tech companies, uh, large pharma companies that have moved and set up shop here in Boston and Cambridge. Um, You see a company like GE that, you know, left Connecticut and uh, decided to to come to Boston. Uh, Amazon itself actually has a number of employees, both uh, in Cambridge as well as in the Seaport District of Boston. So uh, I would say at this point, you get the sense from a lot of companies that they really want to be here. And some of the larger companies, it's sort of cyclical, right? Like if some companies are here, other companies feel like they ought to be here. Otherwise, they're potentially going to miss out on the tech talent and the sort of innovation ecosystem that's here. 
Taking the the Amazon bid aside for a moment, Todd, is is New Hampshire trying to capitalize on that uh, even more so with this new governor, Chris Sununu, trying to draft off of all of that enthusiasm that's coming out of the greater Boston tech market and all these new jobs that are being created? Absolutely. I think he'd be more than happy to siphon off all the talent and all the people that, you know, want want to flee high cost of living and what may be perceived as a high uh, tax bracket. It's interesting. Governor Sununu has made attracting businesses to New Hampshire sort of a number one priority. He uh, cited this heavily during the campaign. He dedicated his first 100 days in office. He promised to meet with 100 businesses from out of state to try to lure them to New Hampshire. Uh, He released a report to that effect. It's unclear you know, how successful that initiative has been. But th- this is a strategy for, for New Hampshire, certainly moving forward. Uh, the, the advantage that some see of, of living in, and working here, let's, let's recruit to our state because we can offer X, Y, and Z. It's interesting. There's a lot that can be said negatively toward, toward cities and towns vying for a, a big project like this Amazon headquarters, putting forward all sorts of pie-in-the-sky proposals and probably offering all sorts of tax incentives as well. But I don't know, Todd, it seems as though some of the things that Amazon is asking for are some of the same things that New Hampshire probably needs to take that next step. Things like like commuter rail, mass transportation, some of the amenities of an urban area like Boston. Is there some notion, at least, that this uh, bidding process might be getting people in southern New Hampshire to be thinking a bit more about putting some of those things in place that are necessary to attract talent, even if it's not you know, from Amazon this time? This was actually a really fascinating part of Governor Sununu's uh, presentation, his press conference announcing this bid. Uh, you know, towards the end, he, he mentioned his willingness to accept commuter rail if Amazon chose to settle in Londonderry, New Hampshire. Commuter rail, which during the campaign again, Sununu called a boondoggle. He was talking about a proposed rail line that would connect Boston up through uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, up through Concord, uh, the so-called Capital Corridor. I mean, this is commuter rail is um, is a non-starter for a lot of Republican politicians here in New Hampshire. It has never curried much favor. So it was really surprising to see the governor sort of reverse course on that and say, yeah, well, you know, if we got a place, if we got a business like Amazon here and we had 50,000 new employees that we have to shuttle back and forth, the highway is just not going to do it and we would be open to rail. It was really uh, eye-opening and we actually saw some Democratic politicians sort of jump on this like, wait a second. You know, there are businesses here already that that say that they would benefit from rail. Why are we doing this only for this, you know, white whale of Amazon? So it, I think it did spark an interesting conversation. Is there any sense in New Hampshire that this is something that's being seriously considered by Amazon, that this is a realistic bid for your state? No, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, the, the state meets almost none of Amazon's stated criteria. You know, they say they want a metro area of at least 1 million people. Our entire state population is 1.3 million. Uh, they cite the need for an international airport. Yes, we can get to Logan and, well, who knows, depending on the traffic, but our own airport, Manchester, is a regional hub. Uh, again, they want mass transit. We don't have that. They want big tax incentives. They expect to make their decision based on those incentives, and that's just something the state has never offered. Asma, are people in Boston banking on this at at this point? Do they really think that they've got a a realistic shot? I mean, there's a lot going for it there. Are, Are they counting on Amazon coming there? 
I wouldn't say that anybody's counting on Amazon coming to Boston, but I do think you meet a lot of Bostonians, particularly those folks in the tech community, who are really eagerly excited, I should say, about the prospect of Amazon coming here. Um, Not just, say, for the number of jobs, the 50,000 jobs that could uh, be attracted to the city, but also, they say, for the idea that an Amazon headquarters here would mean a lot for the local tech sector, right? And the opportunity for folks to, say, leave Amazon and go start their own company. And it would just overall boost the ecosystem. And so, for example, in the Boston bid, you saw a whole section that were letters of support from CEOs and folks at different academic institutions. Asma Khalid is Bostonomics reporter at WBUR. Todd Bookman covers business and economics for New Hampshire Public Radio. Hey, thank you both so much for sharing your insights into the story with us. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Coming up, a haunting in Connecticut with a burger and a side of fries. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. New England this time of year is a leaf peeper's paradise, but it's also a great place to get a good scare. Haunted houses, haunted cemeteries, even haunted restaurants. Next producer Andrew Moraskin found an old tavern that's been the subject of ghost stories all the way back to the American Revolution. She sat down with the author of Old Ghosts of New England, a traveler's guide to the spookiest sites in the Northeast. Abigail's Grill in Simsbury, Connecticut, is one of those places where history overlaps with legend. It first opened in 1780 as Pettibone, a tavern and inn built for Jonathan Pettibone Jr., the son of a captain who fought and died in the American Revolution. It was the place where patriots swapped news of the war. George Washington is mentioned in a Supreme Court case involving the Pettibone Tavern regarding the quartering of troops. But for the lore, I'll turn things over to author C.J. Fusco. Well, the story that is very difficult to verify historically is that um, Captain Pettibone had a son named Jonathan, and his fiancée Abigail was unfaithful, and he caught them in the act, and in a fit of passion, killed them both, and now Abigail can be seen in the uh, women's room mirror behind people, pokes people in the ribs, um, takes down paintings she doesn't like. Abigail or not, members of the restaurant staff, past and present, attest to spooky experiences here. Dana Vanderjack works in the kitchen and buses tables. It's closing one night. We were downstairs. The entire restaurant was closed. All the lights were off. Everyone was gone. The doors were locked. And we went to go leave, and there was a very loud noise upstairs that sounded like someone dragging a heavy table from one side of the restaurant diagonally across the entire upstairs and went upstairs and nothing was moved everything was still set up the party was still set up the way we left it and there was nobody there we basically inherited the story the ghost story marcus lehoffer is the general manager at abigail's he started back in 2008 when the restaurant opened under new ownership The next year, he hired a group of paranormal investigators. They spent three nights at Abigail's. The paranormal entities that they were able to locate in this building were intelligent. That means 
paranormal entities that are of intelligent nature can make themselves known by uh, creating drafts, which I've heard many, many times over the years from people that work here and customers saying, you know, we sit in front of the fireplace and we feel the cold draft. I've heard that from staff that works here. Uh, they could also create noises, voices. I've heard lots of people over the years saying, you know, they, they felt like their name was whispered quietly behind them and turn around and there's nobody there. It actually happened to me a couple times over the years. So I, somebody says, Marcus, and they say, oh, well, there's nobody there. Abigail's has been a place to eat and drink for over 230 years, but other haunted places in Fusco's book have undergone several incarnations. For example, Tio Juan's Margarita's Mexican Restaurant in Concord, New Hampshire. The building in which uh, Tio Juan's um, now resides uh, at one point was a courthouse, at one point was a jail. Um, when they decided to put a Mexican restaurant in there, they kind of embraced uh, the setup of the building, so much to the point where um, the jail cells actually ended up becoming like the booths. But nobody's really sure what the uh, cause of it might be, but according to people who have worked there and even people who have dined there, plates and dishes and glasses will just move by themselves. Some of New England's iconic historic structures, lighthouses and covered bridges, for example, are said to be home to spirits. Some of the more frightening accounts in Old Ghosts of New England originate at the Goldbrook Bridge, also known as Emily's Bridge in Stowe, Vermont. A young woman named Emily was forbidden from marrying her lover, so the two decided to meet one night at Goldbrook Bridge and elope. But her bow didn't show, and Emily hung herself from the rafters. And to this day, people driving over the bridge have given reports of if their windows are, are foggy uh, due to condensation, they see handprints appearing on their windows as they drive over the bridge. Um, or even sometimes some reports of a spectral woman forcibly trying to open the doors to the car. Up for a hike, there's a gorgeous waterfall in the Massachusetts Berkshires named after the soul who's said to linger there. The legend goes a young Native American uh, Mohegan uh, woman was wrongly accused of adultery and therefore sentenced to death. And so instead of uh, letting her accusers uh, have a victory, she decided to jump from this high waterfall in Massachusetts. You know, since then there have been reports of this spectral image of a beautiful woman uh, falling down the waterfalls. Uh, but then once people go and check the actual river below, uh, they don't find any body. And sure enough, the body of Bashbish, which was this woman's name, uh, was never recovered. Maybe you're not the type to hang around waiting for an apparition to show itself. Maybe you've got kids. Fusco recommends a visit to the Turner Ingersoll Mansion in Salem, Massachusetts. It's the setting of Nathaniel Hawthorne's gothic novel, The House of the Seven Gables. And now it's a museum that hosts guided tours, performances, and workshops. Salem has made a cottage industry from the story of the witch trials, Fusco points out, but Connecticut's witch trials and hangings significantly predate Salem's. It's said that some of those hangings took place on what's now Gallows Hill on the campus of Trinity College in Hartford. A fraternity meeting house was built on the site in 1878. It still functions as the home of Trinity's Delta Psi chapter. It's kind of a mysterious place. 
even if you're on Trinity campus, uh, this building is basically walled off from the public. Um, but if you look up, you can see depictions up on the masonry of hangings taking place. Nobody but Trinity graduates know for sure, but the rumors are that there are uh, three tiles, three red tiles in this dining hall, and each one represents where one of the gallows uh, hung. And sure enough, it's uh, reported to be one of the most haunted buildings on campus. Before we leave Abigail's, Marcus Lehofer hands me a copy of the report produced by the Paranormal Investigators in 2009. It says they found evidence, via audio recordings, of two paranormal entities. One female between ages 28 and 34, and one male of an undetermined age. The report notes that the entities don't mean any harm. And depending on your interpretation of something that happened to Lehofer, the resident spirits might even be thoughtful. Lehofer says about six months ago, a group of customers were dining in the restaurant. They finished off a bottle of Chardonnay and asked for another, but the bottle they finished was the last of that particular wine in Abigail's cellar. So the server asked for Lee Hoffer's help selecting a similar wine. The one he chose was called Amelie, like the French movie. So when I brought the wine to the table, there was a younger woman at the table who was all excited because she recognized the name. Now she didn't know the wine, the name of the movie that her wedding that she had just got married like a month before was themed after that movie. I go and pour her a taste of the wine. The wine is gone bad, it's corked, which never happens, very rarely. So I found another wine, it's called Walt, W-A-L-T, like the name. I present this wine to the table, it's an older woman at the table, and she looks at it and she gets all like teary-eyed and emotional, and I'm like, Oh my God, what is happening now? So she's like, oh no, it's not a bad thing. It's just Walt was the name of my deceased husband who we buried this afternoon. That's just so, such a coincidence that I don't think it's actually a coincidence. Between Walt and Abigail, they you know collaborated so that Walt could actually participate in this dinner. I asked Fusco for his takeaway after researching all these stories. Simply put, does he believe in spirits? The way I describe it to people is, you know, I might not necessarily believe that a Ouija board can contact spirits, but I believe in it just enough to not mess with it. Fusco says maybe we seek out ghost stories because we want to believe the world is more magical and wondrous than it actually is. That's Andrea Moraskin reporting. She produces our show at WNPR. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. If you enjoyed this week's show, follow our Facebook page at Next New England. We've got stories from around the region, videos, and a lot more. It's facebook.com slash nextnewengland. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Melville Charitable Trust and is powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR. <laughs>